Thank you so much for being with us today. Um, I do want to talk to you about a topic this morning I think that most of us deal with. What does a normal uh, week look like for you? Think about it. If you are like the typical family in America, you're running yourself absolutely ragged. From the moment your feet hit the floor, you're in high gear, and don't you dare oversleep or miss your alarm because your whole day is going to be shot from the beginning. Um, That's going to throw your whole day off. We have our work schedule, which will go smoothly if we do beat the Charlotte morning traffic and get there on time. We have our work schedule, which uh, our appointments, meetings, projects, deadlines. How many times have you said this to yourself, and I've said this, if I can just get through this week, I'll start over and do the same thing to myself again next week, right? I mean, that's what happens. Uh, we're so busy. We sign our kids up for every extracurricular activity under the sun. Dance, football, softball, baseball, karate, scouts, tutoring, art classes. The list goes on and on and on with things that are out there. After all, we've got to keep them busy so they stay out of trouble, and we want to build that resume for them so they can go to college. I mean, that's our, sometimes our motivation, but is it any wonder that stress cost this nation $300 billion with a B in medical bills and lost productivity every year. Is anybody here tired? Yeah, yeah, we run ragged. But listen to some of these stats. One in five Americans will face extreme stress that includes uncontrolled shaking, heart palpitations, and even depression. Americans are working harder for less. There has been a 60% increase in work productivity over the past 20 years, but wages have remained stagnant, pretty much the same. Three out of every four doctor visits are for stress-related ailments. Stress increases the uh, risk of heart disease by 40%, the risk of, of a heart attack by 25%, and the risk of stroke by 50%. In 1967, uh, Walter Cronkite told TV viewers at home that workers need only wait for the year 2000 for their life of leisure to arrive. Technology is opening a new world of leisure time. One government report projects that by the year 2000, the United States will have a 30-hour work week and month-long vacations as the rule. In 1967, some political scientists thought that the work week could be as short as 16 hours by the year 2020. Those who hunger for time off uh, work may take heart from the forecast of political scientist Sebastian de Grazia that the average work week by the year 2000 will average 31 hours and perhaps as few as 21. 20 years later, on-the-job hours may have dwindled to 26 or even 16. It's a good thing he wasn't a prophet. But what happened? What happened? We found out that the computer age and the means of communications that we have, we could get a lot more done in a shorter period of time. We could increase profits for ourselves, for the company. New standards of productivity were instilled, and we just keep getting busier and busier, churning out more and more for the cause of the almighty dollar. And we were in Africa just over a week ago, And I think I heard Kevin Knight make the statement, we could take some lessons from the Malawians. And I am reminded of this every time I leave this country to go to another country to realize that the United States is probably the only country that lives its life in this fast-paced schedule. 
We are so tied to our schedules. We are so conditioned to punctuality that relationships become secondary and our time is so much more important to us. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. Is it any wonder that our relationships with family, with our friends, with our church family, and most importantly, our relationship with God has suffered? We're just too busy. But can I remind you of what my wife reminds me of often? Who is in charge of your calendar? That girl can sometimes preach, you know it? She'll get me later. We will make time for the things that are most important to us. Will you stand with me? Let's read together chapter 11, beginning in verse 20. It says, Then he began to denounce, Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable, tolerable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God, we look around us and we see a nation who is so busy. So busy that in many cases... We miss you. God, we need to stop and we need to to rest. There are people in this room, even this morning, who came here totally stressed out. God, I pray that as we look at your, um, your solutions, God, that we would open our hearts and realize maybe there needs to be something that needs to change in us. God, I pray your Holy Spirit would be at work God, let me step aside. You speak to hearts. Thank you for all you do for us and all of God's people said, amen. Be seated. I went back and did a little research on these three places that Jesus mentions here. Their actual locations are at the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee and form a triangle referred to by scholars as the Evangelical Triangle. It's called this because it was inside this relatively small area where Jesus did most of his mighty works and his miracles. The first place mentioned is Chorazin. There's not a whole lot said in the scripture about this place, but it was known 
uh, for its good wheat and it was act, that was actually harvested earlier than other towns because of the dark earth that came from vol- volcanic stone called basalt. It heated up early because of its dark color, uh, earlier than regular soil, so the wheat would be harvested sooner there. And during excavations in Chorazin, a seat of Moses was found in the synagogue. Jesus referred to a seat like this one in Matthew 23, 1 through 3, where he told the people to listen to the instruction that came from the person in that seat, but don't follow their ways because they don't practice what they preach. But the next place mentioned is Bethsaida. It was here that Jesus healed a blind man. On a hillside close by, he fed the 5,000. He walks on the water and calms the storm on their way to Bethsaida. And Peter, Andrew, and Philip are all from this town. But Jesus says, woe to both of these places. Now that word can mean grief or sorrow, but it also has the meaning of being cursed, which is what Jesus meant here. Why would Jesus curse these towns? Well, verse 20 gives us a little bit of insight. It says that they saw the miraculous works of Jesus and did not repent. Verse 21, he says that this ignoring Jesus and brushing off what he did was worse than the sin of Tyre and Sidon. Now, I went back and I looked in Ezekiel 26 through 28 to figure out what was the sin of Tyre and Sidon. And we see that at the core is this sin of pride. In fact, when you look at the description of the king of Tyre in Ezekiel 28, scholars debate whether or not this is actually a description of and type of Satan himself. When you see that the king is puffed up with pride, when he makes himself a god to be brought down uh, and destroyed. Could this also not be just applied to this town, not to Tyre and Sidon, but also to the United States? Because of prosperity, because of our education, because of our military power, our economic system, the value of the dollar. Can I tell you that in Malawi, one dollar is worth 700 kwacha? That's their dollar. One dollar to 700 kwacha. Robbie would take a stack of money that we wanted to swap over, a stack like this, and they would bring us a backpack full of money. It's kind of scary. You're like, can you kind of hide that? like a whole big, huge backpack of money in comparison to the exchange rate, our dollar. When you start to look at the United States, we could go on and on, but we have pushed God away. Writing in the same, writing off his mighty works as fairy tales and lumping them in uh, religious things like lucky horseshoes on your wall or, or maybe a rabbit's foot in your pocket. That's the way, and sometimes we look at religion in America. Have we not done the very same thing? We hear that we are the greatest nation on earth, maybe even the greatest nation ever, but fail to give God the credit. In fact, continue to ignore ignore His hand of blessing on America. In fact, push Him out of the public place, removing Him from our schools, removing Him from the Pledge of Allegiance, removing Him from the courtroom where the very laws we live by were established based on the Scripture? Where are we headed as a country? And then Jesus calls out Capernaum. 
Jesus said that they thought they would be exalted to heaven when in fact they were actually headed toward Hades. They also saw Jesus' mighty works, but they didn't repent. They saw a demon cast out of a man, made whole. Jesus healed a Roman centurion servant. Remember, he came to see Jesus. His servant lived afar, away off. And he said, Jesus, you don't even have to come to my house. Just say the word. You're in control of a lot of things like I am in the military. I know who you are. You say the word. And Jesus said, man, I have not seen faith like this in all over Jerusalem. And what happened? That servant at the same time was healed. He went back, the, the centurion, and said, what time was it? And they compared notes. And at the same time, when Jesus said that, his servant at his house was healed. Remember that? It, it was a place where the daughter of Jairus is raised from the dead. This is the daughter of, a, of a, a, one of the uh, officials in the temple. was raised from the dead. And the a paralytic who was let down through the roof by his four friends, who was forgiven of his sins, and also... Uh, healed of his physical deformity to prove that Jesus had the authority to do both. Remember that? All of that was done here in this town. But in verse 23, they are compared to the city of Sodom. We know as we study in the Old Testament that the main reason why Sodom was destroyed was because of the sin of homosexuality. Could this be applied to the United States? Almost every day, we hear about a new level of acceptance of homosexuality. When you look at the archaeological discoveries and evidence in these cities and in their synagogues, you find some interesting information. Built into the architecture and flooring of the synagogues, you find pagan symbols. The zodiac, images of the sun god, the head of Medusa from Greek mythology. You would see those things. What does this tell us? The pagan culture was even making its way into the house, the synagogue that was meant for the worship of the true God. Sadly, I think America is headed down that same slippery slope. Read with me in verse 25. It says, At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You know, there's always been a part of the culture that has rebelled against God. We see that as a common subject throughout the Old Testament, even when God's chosen people turn from him at times, right? It even happens right after some incredible miracle that God does right in front of them. It seems as if the next day they're complaining or immediately rebelling. There have always been those groups in America who have rebelled against God. Many times it's the same group that Jesus mentions here in verse 25 as the wise and understanding, meaning those who are wise in their own understanding, not those with the wisdom of God. Go sit on our college campuses under professors who claim to have these PhDs and have this wisdom and have this knowledge and listen to their message as they try to undermine Scripture, as they try to deceive our young people into believing that the Word of God is not really God's words. The educated, who should know, but under their own wisdom are deceived and don't know the truth. 
Is it just me? We've had this conversation in staff meeting. I've talked to other religious leaders. But have you noticed that in recent years, and I'm talking the last three to five years, a sharp increase in rebellion toward truth and righteousness? What is happening? It's not just an I don't care about Christianity, Christianity attitude, keep it away from me, but almost a militant hatred toward the values expressed in the Bible and lived out by Christians. We're seeing it over and over again. Jesus tells us here that he is not going to reveal this special relationship that the Father has with the Son and the Son has with the Father with those that claim to be wise and those who have human understanding. They're not going to get it. But he is going to reveal it to those who come to him. How in verse 25? As little children. Children don't have hidden agendas. Children aren't scarred with the the cares of this world. Children aren't puffed up with the pride of accomplishments. They come open, innocent, and humble with no pretense. It also says that Jesus the Son will choose those to whom he will reveal himself. You know, when we look at the life of Jesus when he walked here on this earth, it's interesting in the scripture where he would walk up to people and it said Jesus knew their heart. He knew right away what they were thinking. He could even talk to him. He went to Nicodemus, and, and he, out, he doesn't talk about all the niceties. He goes right to the crux of the matter of why Nicodemus came. He said, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus didn't ask that, but you know what? It was all in his heart to ask that question. It was in his mind. Jesus knew it. And you know what? Jesus still knows the heart of man. He knows if we're going to be sincere. He knows if we're truly seeking after God to find out the truth or if we're doing it to, to feed our own belly, or to, to have some other kind of, uh, of idea of why we pursue God, a selfish motive. God knows that. And then we read this familiar passage about rest. You know, it is left unsaid here, but in the context, we find out what really causes stress. Not just fatigue to the body, but stress to the soul. The exact sins of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum is that cause. They saw the truth, the power, and the peace that is found in Christ Jesus, and did they embrace it? Did they accept it? No, they pushed it away, and they denied it. And along with that came stress of the soul. In reality, we have a greater responsibility than even the evangelistic triangle because we have the completed word of God. We have access to the whole story and even parts of the story that haven't happened yet. Folks, we're responsible. You know, I've seen a bumper sticker out there that I don't like, and if you have it on your car, I apologize up front, but it summarizes a growing thought in our society. It has a picture of the Bible on it, and it reads, when all else fails, read the instructions. You know, I'm glad it's recognizing that the Bible is where we find correct instructions, but why in the world would we go to everything else first? Why not start with the Bible? Why not find out what God has to say, the one who created everything we see, and find out what he says? So what does God tell us to do in his word? How do we find Freedom from stress. Look at verse 28. It says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Notice, he doesn't say come to church and find rest. He doesn't say come to a program and find rest. He doesn't say get more facts and information about Christianity and you'll find rest. Jesus says, come to me. Jesus says that it starts with a personal relationship with him. Do you have that? Do you have that? If you have a personal relationship with Jesus, it started the moment you realized that you were a sinner. Confess that to him and ask him to be your Lord and Savior. To come into your life and to make you a new creation. That is a life-changing event. And even if you don't remember the date of when it happened, you remember the circumstances and how you were set free. You remember that feeling? When that burden of sin dropped off your shoulders and you realized that Jesus was your Savior. Whoo! Somebody here may be thinking in their heart right now, I don't remember ever doing that, Kevin. I don't ever remember having that freedom feeling of all that sin and garbage that was in my life. Jesus points out that he wants those who are laboring. Those are the people who are striving to be good enough so that God will accept them. I've heard that. People have said that. I've got to get my life all cleaned up. When I get everything right and I get this in place and I do this and do that, then I'll come to God and I'll be forgiven and I'll get saved. Guys, he says, come to me. He doesn't say get off rid of all this stuff in your life. You're talking about an area to stress a person out. Try to live up to God's standard. It's impossible to do, folks. God's standard of holiness is perfection. And the Bible is clear that all of us in here are flawed. We have sin-cursed flesh hanging on our bones that cannot be cured until this body is taken off and we are glorified to be in heaven with God and free from sin. We struggle. It's a struggle. But when we come to Jesus, who did live this life tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin... We are covered by his work on the cross and his payment for sin. A payment that you and I could never make. Does that not bring us rest? It brings rest, amen? Jesus also points out that he wants those who are heavy laden. Now scholars believe that Jesus here is referring to the heavy load of legalism that was imposed on people by the scribes and Pharisees. These were man's rules. These were not God's ideas. But it was this checklist that the Pharisees would put out. And unless you do this, 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 and this, unless you do all these things, unless you wash your hand, whatever it was, you can't be religious. You can't be spiritual. And this reinforces the fact that it's not about a set of man-made rules and regulations, but it's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. Never in this passage do we ever hear him listing out all the good things you've got to do before you become a believer, before you become his child. He says, come to me. And the second thing Jesus says to do to really find rest is in verse 29 and 30. Look at it again. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You say, wait a minute, Kevin. I thought you just said we took off this load of stuff. Now you want to put back on my shoulders a yoke? But think about this for a moment. Think about it for a moment. In the New Testament times, you would hear someone use the phrase, taking on the yoke of a particular rabbi or teacher. 
This simply meant that the student would be submitting to and be dedicated to that particular rabbi's teaching. It was a huge commitment, but it was also a huge honor to study under that rabbi. That's what Jesus is asking us to do. But also, they used the illustration of a yoke that would pair oxen together. It was a big piece of wood that would go around the necks of the, of the oxen and allow them to carry the workload together. Many times the farmer would pair an older, larger, trained ox with a younger, smaller, inexperienced ox. This would allow the younger to learn from the older, and, and, and a whole lot more would get done. Think about that. Because that younger ox is not going to buck up against that older ox, the one that knows where to go and knows what to do. In light of that, read that again with me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Does it say here that the burden is gone? No. It doesn't say that the burden is gone. But Jesus does want to teach us how to plow this field we call life. But he's not going to force himself on us. You see the characteristics he uses of himself? He says he's gentle and lowly in heart. If we are continually pushing against God and saying, I don't want to go your way, I want to do my thing, you know what he's going to let us do? Let us eventually go. And some of the greatest uh, punishments, some of the greatest circumstances is God looking at Kevin and saying, Kevin, I'm going to give you what you want. How many times... Have we heard God say no to us? We were upset at the time, but then we realized what happened. And years down, maybe, maybe years down the road, we look back and we said, God, thank you for saying no to that one. Whew, I would have been in a big hurt. Jesus wants to teach us, but he's not going to force himself on us. How many of us have made the decision to become a child of God? We yoke up with him, but we want to plow the field of our life with rows going north and south, but God is plowing east and west. Think about that scenario for just a minute. Is that going to work? No way. No way. He is a much bigger ox, and you're going to live a miserable, unfruitful life. But what happens when we line our will, our desires, our motives, our goals in the same direction with the will of God? You know, it's really frustrating. One of the things that was great about Malawi was seeing the willingness to hear about God. We had vacation Bible school four days in the same community. Uh, Nami Talala, I think is how you pronounce it. I won't get you to say it back to me, but Nami Talala, we would go there. It's about an hour and 10 minutes from where we stayed, but it was only about 11.2 miles. That gives you an idea how long it would take to get there in the road condition. But they told us at the end of the week that no group from the United States had ever been there. One of the J-Life guys told me, you know, I've never been out to this community. But folks, these people came out in droves. They would be waiting, like way down the road for our bus and run in with the bus all the way in cheering and yelling and so excited. There were adult pockets of people all around the, around the fringes watching and, and, and Davey and, and our share time the first night said, what are we going to do with these adults? What are we going to do about these adults? We need to pray that there's going to be an opportunity for us to reach out to these adults. 
And so the next day, Becky would go around to the groups with, with the lead teacher, and, and one of the cool things they would like to do is for you to take their picture with a digital camera, and then you could turn around and show them their picture, because they may have never seen themselves in a picture. And so they would see it, and they would laugh and giggle and love to see themselves in a picture. And, and while she was doing that, Justin, the lead teacher, looked at her and said, what are we going to do with the adults? There's maybe an answer to our prayer right there. And so we said, well, we want to meet with him. Can we meet with him? He said, yeah. So he started gathering up all these pockets of people, and there was an empty shelter that was right there, kind of an open building, just a concrete floor, no pews, no chairs, no anything. And about 30 to 40 of these people came in this uh, shelter and sat on this hard concrete floor. And Kevin Knight, the first day, for about an hour, spoke to them while, while they did the closing time out here. And you know what? Those, not one complaint that I see somebody going, you know, working around, or, or, or complain about the, the hot temperatures of 90 degrees or wherever it was. They sat there, eyes glued on that translator and on Kevin Knight as long as we would have stayed there. He gave an invitation and asked who, who would like to be saved. You know, about probably 80%, Kev, about 80% of that building prayed to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And it happened over and over and over again. One of the days of VBS, I think it was the first day of Vacation Bible School, Leslie and I were out helping with games. We had interpreters and praise. One of the guys from J-Life came and got us and said, Kevin, can you go down? There's a lady down here in a house. She's asking for a special prayer. We said, okay. Well, the translators knew the game, so we let them take over the game. And Leslie and I followed praise down this trail right behind the school where we were having Vacation Bible School. Down this trail, winding through, and all, all of a sudden it opened up, and there was about three, four houses sitting right there in a little pocket. And right below... Uh, a big tree in front of one of the houses, and you'll see the picture probably tonight, was a lady seated there on a grass mat. Her daughters scattered around with grandchildren, her oldest son to my right, and the father, the elderly dad, sitting kind of off in a distance under a tree over here. And I came down, and this lady had a towel up under her arm. And Praise explained to me this lady had cancer. And that early May, she was going to go to the, the public hospital, which were t are terrible there, um, but even then when she went, they probably wouldn't do anything about it. She pulled that cloth off, y'all, and showed me that thing. It was a sore about this big around. It stuck off of her arm probably that far, and it was oozing and had blood. I mean, I, I, I kind of control my face and like go, oh, my word, to see that. She put that thing back up on there. It was, it was horrible. And I, I said to her, I said, you know, before I talk to you about physical healing, it's important that we pray over this and, and pray that God heals that. I want to talk to you about spiritual healing. Can I share with you what it means to be a child of God? Because if we become a child of God, you are going to be healed. It may not be here on this earth, but when we get to heaven, guess what? You're going to be given a new body that is whole, no cancer, no pains, no ails. We talked through that, and so they said, yeah, please tell us about that. So I stopped, and we went through the gospel, and it was, you know, it's hard sometimes to communicate because you're going through a translator. And so we got to the end, and praise kind of looked over, and he said, okay. I said, well, do, you, do they want to pray? I said, who wants to pray? And he said, all of them. I'm like, what? I mean, that, that shocked me. It surprised me because I know in America, if I were to go out and just randomly go to someone and start sharing the gospel with them and talking to them about Jesus, you know what probably the response would be? Dude, I've heard that. I'm already a Christian. I got baptized when I was little. I'm a good person. Get away from me. I've got that taken care of. That's the kind of response we get. And guys, we have everything in America. These people have 
absolutely nothing. Yet their heart is open to hear the gospel. Something is wrong. Something is wrong, folks. When we align our will, our desires, our motives, our goals in the same direction with the will of God, what happens? The burden doesn't go away. It doesn't say here that it's automatically everything's great. But what does it say? It becomes easier. It becomes lighter. Because think about it. We start tapping into the power that is larger, more experienced, that ox named Jesus that we yoke up with and start traveling along with and resting in his power rather than our own. You see what happens? And we look behind us, we don't see this field of zigzag tension of, God, I want to do it this way. And God's just going along. We look back and we see neat, clean rows that bring about a harvest that is plentiful. Guys, where are we? Are you at rest? Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Ask yourself that question right now. Is my soul at rest? And what honest answer do you get back? Only you and God know. If you're saying a big resounding no in your heart this morning, then probably one of two things is wrong. Number one, you've never made the decision to ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. Did you know that right now you can call out to the Lord in your heart, in the silence of your heart, You may be saying, Kevin, I I don't know what to say. Can I tell you to just be honest with God? Say something like this. God, I have been searching in every direction for rest and for peace. I am totally stressed out and I have missed you. I've been looking everywhere else but the true source of rest and that's in you. God, I have made a mess of my life. I have toiled. I have worked to the point of exhaustion, and God, I'm still empty. God, I need you. God, I need you to take my sin, the burden that's on my shoulders right now, and God, I need forgiveness. God, I want to ask you to wipe me clean, make me new, make me that new creation that the Bible speaks about. Come live inside of me by the power of your Holy Spirit. I believe that Jesus came to earth to die on a cross to pay for my sin. God, I want to put faith and trust in that because it is sure and it's true. God, I want to trust in that. Maybe you're here this morning and you're already a Christian. You prayed and asked Jesus to save you from your sin, but you've never really given in to the authority, the wisdom, the power, in reality, his lordship. Maybe you did for a while but you've taken the control of your life back. You're fighting with him every step of the way, and to be honest, your life right now is just plain miserable. And this morning, you're done fighting. Instead, why don't you go to the Lord and say, God, I want to start learning. I want to yoke myself up with you, God. I want to start heading in your direction. 
I know which ways I've tried to go, and it has been disastrous. It has been tension, and God, I want to start learning from you and your ways and following after you, God. Teach me. It's a process of learning, isn't it? We have to be willing. God, I pray this morning that you would be at work. God, it's not about anything I've said. It's about what the Holy Spirit does in hearts. So God, if there's somebody here this morning that needs you as Savior, this morning they would do it. They came to church this morning not even having this as a blip on their radar. But God, this morning you've done a work in their heart. God, you want to save them. There are others here who, if they're honest, are saying, you know what? God doesn't control my life. I control my life. God, I pray that they would confess that before you. They would seek after you. They would desire to learn from you. God, do your work this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.